0: Hey everybody, Joe here. I'm just cutting in before the music with a brief editorial insert... It's happened before, uh, it happened again. This is one of those episodes that went long. Rob and I originally planned it to be one standalone chat, but it started taking on an unwieldy form while we were recording, so we decided to go ahead and chop it up into two parts. Uh, so this is why in a few minutes you might hear me make references to things I'm going to bring up later in the episode, uh, but we actually won't get to them until part two, so apologies for any confusion on that front. As a general outline, we're going to introduce and illustrate our central topic in part one here, and then we'll be going deeper into the weeds of subsequent research in part two. So without any further delay, I'll now plunge you back into the show. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about a concept known as the Kuleshov effect. Uh, This is an idea from film theory, but I think this will make a really interesting episode because... It's uh, First of all, it's at that, that weird intersection space, you know, the midnight at the crossroads of, uh, of art and science. Mm-hmm. And then uh, secondarily, I think it's one of those great observations that is simple, almost obvious in, in its implications when, when you first grasp it. But you, the more you think about it, the weirder and more powerful it gets, especially in a historical context.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting topic, and one I have to admit that I, I don't think I'd ever really absorbed before. I don't know if it ever came up in um, any of like the, the the film classes that I took, like in college. Yeah, um, same th- here. And uh, and and at the same time, yeah, I, I I read about this and then went out and actually watched. Uh, uh, um, I watched a film and watched uh, you know probably a couple of TV shows over the weekend, and so I had it fresh on my mind looking for it. And on one hand, you do see it everywhere, but then you don't. Like it's uh, yeah. it's this thing that that uh, when you're when you first read about it, it sounds like oh well, this is like part of the blueprint of how film works, mm-hmm. and that's kind of that's kind of one of the arguments that's made for it, and yet. It's not necessarily as apparent as you might expect it to be, but there are some wonderful examples to be uh, to be
0: d- d- dwelt upon. Well, the way I'd put it after having done all the research for this episode is that I think it is sort of part of the blueprint of how film works, except in the way it's usually explained. It's just a few degrees off. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that would make sense but i'll i'll explain more about that as as we go on another thing that's interesting about this though is it's something that's originally from the realm of art and aesthetic criticism you know it's from film theory but it also has a sort of mixed research history within the fields of experimental psychology and neuroscience you know there's some empirical experiments that seem to find evidence of the effect and others do not find it and i think Part of the uh, part of the difference there is how you ask the question and what kind of stimuli you use. But it could be interesting to see what the difference is there as well. But I, I guess we should get straight to explaining what the Kuleshov effect allegedly is. So in the words of the authors of a 2006 uh, neuroscience paper by Mobs et al. that I'll refer to later in the episode, the Kuleshov effect is the following proposition. It is that, quote, the manipulation of context can alter an audience's perception of an actor's facial expressions, thoughts and feelings. Yeah, yeah, and this is something that is at 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 the, at the very root of
1: everything is uh, is based on theory of mind that we as humans look at another person and we simulate what's going on in their head. What what are their thoughts? What are their motivations? Uh, what are their intentions, etc.? Um, uh, so, yeah, it's theory, theory, theory of mind at heart, but it's not just the face; it's also something else. And basically, this gets into just uh, in, into
0: filmmaking and editing. Right, it's the the idea of montage. Uh, that's the word that's often used here, but uh, that would probably give us ideas of a very specific technique of like, mm-hmm. you know, you're like the training montage the training, in yeah, the Rocky exactly. film or something. You should actually be thinking of montage when we say it in this episode more broadly. It's not just that; it means the uh, the arrangement of different shots into a sequence through editing, no matter what. Kind of technique you're using there. If you're taking different shots and putting them into a sequence, that is montage for today's purposes. Yeah, and and again,
1: it it all comes back to editing the way the footage is put together. You can basically think of it as like face POV shot face. Um, for instance, uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, described it once as being a situation where okay, again, think of three shots. First shot, he says, is man looking out the window. Shot number three. Is a man smiling now, uh, what you put in that second slot, what, whatever that second shot is that you insert that changes the context entirely now, uh, as we were discussing before we recorded here, this Alfred Hitchcock example, though widely cited, is also a little imperfect because if you want to get right down to the like the core theory it 's just' it's shot one should be a man looking out a window. shot number three should just be that man looking out a window, no smile. But it still comes down to what is shot number two, because that
0: changes how you think about that man in shot three. Right. You seem to see something different in the man, even though you could use the exact same footage of him. So the editing context changes what we think we see in a previous or a subsequent shot, even though you're using the exact same shots. So one of the funny in in Hitchcock's example, he uh, he talks about this in a famous interview. I think he did. Uh, with Maybe it was with the CBC or somebody, but, uh, but he was using the example of, okay, in the first uh, sequence, imagine that the middle shot that's intercut there is like a, a mother playing with a baby. And in that case, oh, he's a kindly old grandfather man. And then the second option is that the middle shot is a woman in a bathing suit, in which case he says, then you perceive his smile as being that of a dirty old man. And I guess it kind of helps because it's actually Alfred Hitchcock they use in the visual example. (laughs) Uh, Now, we'll come back to more about what this idea is and and what it might mean. But uh, maybe first we should just do a little bit of biography on the the, the namesake of this idea. Uh, So the Kuleshov effect is named after a guy named Lev Kuleshov, who is a uh, Russian filmmaker and film theorist who... I, I think – I don't know. You could say it was like a major force in the history of film theory and uh, and is primarily responsible for popularizing this alleged effect.
1: Yes. Uh, Lev Kuleshov, who lived 1899 through 1970, Russian director, film theorist, who started out in art direction and some acting – before moving increasingly into directing, experimental editing, and scholarship. He was one of the founders of the world's first film school, the Moscow Film School. And uh, yeah, he introduced the American film concept of montage into Soviet cinema based on examining the works of directors such as D.W. Griffith and uh, as David Golevsky points out in his book, Early Soviet Cinema, he, quote, played a more significant part in the development of the golden age of Russian cinema uh, than any other figure with the exception of of Eisenstein, and uh, this would refer to uh, Sergei Eisenstein, another big name in film, a uh, 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 big big name Russian film director of the time period, theorist of the day, who uh, listeners might know from such films as uh, Battleship Potemkin from 1925. That's the old uh, baby stroller down the
0: stairs movie, right? Mm. Now, one thing I do remember from actual film classes that I took in college was that a lot of early Soviet cinema does make use of the montage more in the sense of uh the specific film technique where you're like taking a bunch of different images and, and putting them together to suggest a kind of uh, uh, a kind of sequence or progression, more like the training montage. Uh, but the, the main example I remember there is a movie we watched by uh, Vertov called the man with the movie camera, which is mm. basically the whole movie is just a montage uh of, of, you know, Russian public life. By the way, uh if anyone out there wants to hear us talk
1: even more about silent film, we did an episode of Weird House Cinema um some point in the last year where we mm-hmm. did like a silent film double feature where we we picked out uh, just a couple, maybe three different silent films and talked about what was neat about them and just talked about sort of the the challenges to the modern uh viewer uh that that silent film poses, but also the rewards of watching them. So uh what one of the, the main things Kuleshov was doing here uh, was that he was he, he wasn't even uh, even even shooting new footage in these experiments. Uh, he was taking uh, pre-existing footage, silent film footage, usually um, czarist era silent film, and recutting them to to see what could be done uh, with this montage feature, like how how to arrange the, uh, the the footage to get different. Um, in, you know, emotional results, and a lot of it was based again in looking at what was going on and what seemed to be working in uh, in, in in Western film, in American film, uh, specifically again like the work of D.W. Griffith, and uh, just in general, Kuleshov's was was somewhat controversial at times, apparently in in these uh these experiments uh, you know he's looking at american models western models so he was accused by communist party members at times of appealing to western ideas and forms too much and he's also uh apparently been accused of living it up during tough times in russia and destroying si- archive silent era films during this editing work uh which again uh the, the work that w- wasn't really based that, uh, so much in shooting new footage and experimenting with how you might edit them together, but taking pre-existing footage from the archive and editing it together. Right. Now, as a director, Kuleshov is apparently, and and I'm I'm speaking largely of a a director that I really didn't know anything about before. Yeah, uh, me neither. But uh, he's apparently best known for 1924's The Extraordinary Adventures of Mr. West in the Land of the Bolsheviks. (laughs) He also adapted the works of Jack London and O. Henry. But uh, especially for this show, we should really highlight that he also made a death ray spy
0: thriller. I thought this was really interesting. Somehow, I guess this never came up when we did our Invention episodes on the Death Ray.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or if it did, I, I've forgotten about it. Because this seemed new to me, but it fits right in there. Because uh, if you haven't heard our uh, episodes of the Invention podcast on the Death Ray, those were some of my favorites that we did. Especially because it, we got to talk about an Invention that never really existed. And yet, uh, was the the subject of a popular fervor, you know, that like people were really excited about death rays for the 1920s yeah. and that just n- th- there was never any such thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the the invention itself never existed, but you had kind of a global death ray fever going on. Yeah. And this is 1924. So it's right smack dab in the middle of it. A film titled Luch Smurty or The Death Ray. Uh, Galepsi describes it as, quote, a relatively violent film about international espionage. <laughs> So I had to look in. I, I looked at footage. The, the available footage that I could find of it wasn't uh, wasn't super great to watch. Uh, but there's some impressive stills. The the plot is spot on for what you might expect from a Soviet death ray movie of the time period. We follow a socialist revolutionary who has to flee an unnamed uh, fascist capitalist country. Uh, the socialist revolutionary has to flee. To the Soviet Union. And once there, he is introduced to the new technology of the death ray, which can uh, explode gunpowder at a distance, which is a key detail because that's exactly uh, the the sort of thing uh, that was part of the uh, the death ray fever
0: that we discussed in the invention episode. That's right. So the brief top line on that is that – uh, basically, a lot of this death ray fever came from reaction to the horrors of long-range bombing, aerial mm-hmm. bombing in World War One, And people wanted the idea of something that could shoot bombers out of the sky from a great distance before they got to your cities. And the death ray filled in that gap. Exactly. So basically,
1: uh, the evil spy follows them and steals the death ray technology so that they can use it to suppress labor strikes but don't worry. The labor strikers steal the death ray technology back and use it to blow up their oppressors' bomber aircraft, which is about to be used against the uh, the strikers.
0: This almost makes me want to compile and watch a list of all the death ray movies of the nineteen twenties. <laughs> just put them all together and see see what kind of picture emerges. Yeah, yeah. Or and
1: I'm I'm curious. Like, what is the best death ray movie? I'm I'm, I'm assuming the best death ray movies came later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, came in the wake of films such as this.
0: Okay, well, so that's Lev Kuleshov. And I wanted to get a little bit into the background of this idea of the Kuleshov effect by consulting his own words. So I found a book called Kuleshov on Film, Writings. This was published by the University of California Press in 1974. I'm not positive. I think this might be a reprint of some earlier writings of Kuleshovs But the context is, I, um, I, I was consulting an early section of this book where he's discussing a series of investigations he and his colleagues carried out in the late 19-teens and into the 20s, essentially to try to figure out how film actually works. They, they were asking questions like, how do audiences make meaning out of the images they see over the course of a film? Uh, which is a great question, and it is something that early filmmakers really had to figure out we We can take a lot of film meaning making for granted these days because uh you know uh, film techniques are so well honed these days that they 're often invisible to us you know you, you you If you watch a professionally made movie you will you will not even notice the fact that, say, all of the eye lines in it have been aligned correctly so that when a character looks at something and then it cuts to that thing, it's lined up so that it's not confusing. But that's like a technique that had to be learned, and there are tons of things like that. They're just invisible to us now, as, as a lot of good filmmaking techniques are. I mean, ideally, mm-hmm. I guess... Uh, well, I mean, there are different ideas of this, but, you know, a, a common view, I think, among a lot of filmmakers is that techniques should not call attention to themselves, but instead should disappear and allow you to just become totally absorbed in the narrative to help bring about the raw experience quality of, of modern cinema. Yeah, yeah. And that's I mean, that's something I, I,
1: I like to stick to. I mean, unless the film is so uh, poor <laughs> and it's uh execution that you can't help but but notice
0: it you know well when yeah. uh, and certainly there are plenty of examples of that but so kulishov and, and colleagues are trying to investigate how does film work uh, what what are the techniques that that cause an audience to think or feel a certain way And so, famously, uh, Kuleshov feels that he has achieved a breakthrough when he starts to discover the power of montage, or editing. He starts to think of editing as a sort of master key behind the power of cinema. Uh, And he believes that montage has a power greater than simply showing you a series of moving images in sequence so that you think, well, one follows the other. Instead, he comes to think that by ordering shots in a sequence... You actually change the meaning of the shots themselves or change the perception of what is contained in the shots. And there's a memorable example that Kuleshov describes in the book. I'll, I'll just read it directly. He says, I saw this scene, I think in a film by Razumni, a priest's house with a portrait of Nicholas II hanging on the wall. That, that, that would be the czar, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the village is taken over by the Red Army, the frightened priest turns the portrait over, and on the reverse side of the portrait is the smiling face of Lenin. However, this is a familiar portrait, a portrait in which Lenin is not smiling. But that spot in the film was so funny, and it was so uproariously received by the public, that I myself, scrutinizing the portrait several times, saw the portrait of Lenin as smiling." Especially intrigued by this, I obtained the portrait that was used and saw that the expression on the face in the portrait was serious. The montage was so edited that we involuntarily imbued a serious face with a changed expression, characteristic of that playful moment. In other words, the work of the actor was altered by means of montage. In this way, montage had a colossal influence on the effect of the material. It became apparent that it was possible to change the actor's work, his movements, his very behavior in either one direction or the other through montage. I thought this was a great example because I haven't seen the film in question, but mm-hmm. uh, but I can understand exactly the effect he, he's describing here this, with this portrait of Lennon because of the tone of the scene. The context makes it darkly comedic, like it's funny, but it's also threatening that a, a serious or neutral face could be perceived as having a kind of wicked grin. Mm, yeah, i you know, the, 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 this reminds me just in general of
1: um, you know, any time you have any kind of a portrait, be it a painting or a photograph. Um, I guess, the, you know, just in general, outside of film, uh, it can seem to take on different dimensions based on what you are doing or what your mindset is. If you're sort of imagining that the um, that the subject of the painting or picture can see you or you're leaning into that sort of uh, interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like, why is Vigo the, the Carpathian uh, staring at me like that? Is he is, uh, is he proud? Is he
0: angry at me? Is he smiling? Oh, that makes me wonder. Did they it, when they filmed Ghostbusters too? Did they have multiple paintings of Vigo with slightly different expressions on his face, or Ooh. did they just use one portrait and and rely on the Kuleshov effect for oh us to God. kind of read emotions into it? I wish I'd thought of this earlier. <laughs> well, anyway, so we're about to get to the uh, description of the main alleged experiment that establishes the – we're about to get into canonical Kuleshov effect territory. So following this realization uh, uh, about uh, the power of editing or montage to change what is perceived within the shot itself, uh, there's this famous story about an experiment Kuleshov supposedly carried out to put the idea to the test – Uh, And I want to flag at the beginning here that multiple sources I have read raise questions about whether this test ever actually took place in the way it is described. Um, But I would say it doesn't especially matter because we're going to be just using this story to illustrate an idea. Then we can look at other tests later, not to provide evidential force that it it must be as Kuleshov says. So, whether or not this event actually took place exactly like this, this is how it's described in a book called How Movies Work by Bruce Kawin. This was uh, University of California Press, 1992. Uh, Kawin writes as follows about Kuleshov's experiment. He found some old footage of a pre-revolutionary actor named Ivan Majukin, a single long take, probably a makeup test, in which the face showed an unvarying neutral expression. Kuleshov then cut three different shots into this take, one of a child playing with a toy, one of a bowl of soup, and one of an old woman in a coffin. The sequence went as follows, face, child, face, soup, face, woman, face. When he showed this short film to an audience, although this may be a bit of cinematic folklore, they remarked what a great actor Majukin was. They enjoyed the subtle way he expressed affectionate delight at the child's playing, hunger for soup, and grief at the death of the woman, whom they assumed was his mother. The Majukin experiment, as it has since been called, had a permanent impact on the theory of screen acting. It showed that audiences will read shots in terms of each other, and therefore that a film actor, who ought ideally to underact, could allow the montage to suggest some of his or her emotions and thoughts. The point for our immediate purposes, however, is simply that the impression of continuity is often generated by the audience. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll come back with some additional history of uh, research to to build upon this later, but Kuleshov used this alleged experiment in support of his broader theory of how film worked, Uh, one of the main points of which was that the soul of a film was in the editing process, and that the edit of the film actually had more power over the film's effect than the contents of any individual shot. Uh, I think another way of phrasing this is that the way you edit your footage together is ultimately more important than what an actor does while the camera is rolling, because the meaning of an actor's performance can be totally changed by the editing context. And in fact, uh, Kuleshov allegedly carried out a couple of other uh, experiments along these lines that are known sometimes as creative geography and creative anatomy. Uh, Creative anatomy would be using shots of uh, parts of different bodies from different actors creating the illusion that they all belong to the same person so you can show a different person's hands lips legs and so forth and create an imaginary composite person that doesn't exist Uh, he also did the same thing with physical geography so he would have for example a shot of people walking along a street in Moscow and then maybe going up a staircase and then going to a mansion that was actually the White House in Washington DC creating the illusion that they're all it's just one continuous walk all in the same place but they're on different continents which at the time they looked at that discovery as revelatory they're like mm-hmm. oh wow like you actually don't need to <laughs> shoot stuff that's in the same geographic place in order to suggest being in the same geographic place, you can invent geographies that don't exist out of different parts.
1: Which, of course, now is just this is just how you make films, right? You know, you 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 have one exterior and maybe the interior is a set or it's somewhere on the other side of the country, you know. Um, you know, you read, you read any behind-the-scenes making, uh, just any of your favorite films, and you'll find stuff like, uh, like The Library and Ghostbusters, the first Ghostbusters film. I think parts of that are in just, you know, they're from all over, depending on whether you're outside or you're inside or you're in the basement. Right. And then, uh, and then also, when it comes to the anatomy question here, I mean, it's, it's why you have stunt doubles, body doubles. It's why you can finish a film uh, even though Bella Lugosi died while shooting it. Right. <laughs> so that's probably you're getting into the the poor example a bit in that that uh, specific example.
0: No plan 9 from outer space is a is a wonderful <laughs> example of uh of what you can do with the magic of cinema editing. Yes.
1: Uh
0: but but to get back to the core idea here the sp- and and I think it'll be important for us to think about the Kuleshov effect in a couple of different ways. One is just the broader idea that editing context can radically change the meaning of individual shots, which I think we just all know from experience is, is obviously true. This is a, a fact about how uh, movies work. But the other thing is the more specific claim of the alleged Mojukin experiment that you can take a totally neutral shot of an actor's face displaying no emotion whatsoever. And by intercutting it with other footage, you can change what the audience perceives in those shots of the actor's face. You can, the audience will come to think, that uh, you know, a neutral face intercut with image of a child playing is like a happy parental, uh, you know, th- and, and like a bowl of soup means they're 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 filled with pangs of hunger, even though it's the exact same neutral footage of the face. So that's the more specific claim, and I think it's that second one that's more questionable, but but also interesting in its own regard, and and we're going to look at at least a, a couple of papers about that as we go on but i thought it might be good to just discuss a few examples that this uh the thinking about this effect calls to mind Mm -hmm. from uh from movies that you and i have seen and one thing i find very interesting is that at least personally anecdotally i feel a kind of experience of the kuleshov effect even the more specific version with neutral faces in movies that don't actually involve real faces, mm. uh, a really great example I came across was mentioned on the TV Trope's website for the Kuleshov effect. If you've never never, never been to that website, it's a great—it's like a wiki style, you know, user-submitted content, but it just includes big lists of different sorts of uh, conventions of of uh, TV and movies and things like that: narrative conventions, filmmaking conventions, uh, cliches, and such. And so they've got a page on the Kuleshov effect, and it mentioned HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I thought was a fantastic example.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. And I I wouldn't have thought of it at first uh, myself. But, yeah, you just have that red light. HAL has no face at all, not even the semblance of a face.
0: Exactly. So, yeah, it's not even a computer screen that kind of looks like a face. It's just a red light. Uh, And so that completely removes the possibility of picking up on cues and micro expressions based on the, the feelings or mind state of a human actor. Hal's face is just the light. And yet the editing context, at least for me, absolutely causes me to read emotional expression and emotional content into the red light. So sometimes depending on what it's being intercut with, the light looks calm. Other times the red light looks suspicious or even paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think this is, this is, this is
1: a great read. Um, it, it reminds me of another example that I, I ran across. So I was, I was just looking for, at first I was just looking for mainstream examples, you know, and, uh, I ran across, um, a video from makingstarwars.net that points to some examples in Star Wars. The first of which is a, is just pretty, pretty standard. I imagine, um, you have the scene where Luke is surveying the, the destruction of his aunt and uncle's home. You have shots of devastation, shots of, of Luke's face. Uh, you know, so they inform each other. But the more impressive examples, I thought, were were discussions of how you have shots of Darth Vader during the final confrontation in um, Return of the Jedi. Uh, this is the this is where uh, uh, Emperor Palpatine has uh, has had Luke and Vader fight, and then Luke refuses to kill his father, and so uh, the Emperor is just going to force lightning him to death in front right. of Vader. And we, of course, you know, later in the film, we, we see Vader's face, but you don't see Vader's face. You just see this, uh, this em- emotionless uh, bug skull uh, helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that scene where we're, we're seeing what he's seeing, we're seeing shots of Luke suffering, writhing under the agony of the Force lightning. Um, we, 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 we see that change in Vader, even though we don't see his face.
0: I totally agree. I think this is another great example. Yeah, it's just the mask. So you can't be picking up on human expressions. But yeah, you read expression into the masked face based on uh, what's happening to Luke, you start to almost see him feeling compassion.
1: Yeah. Uh, Another example they bring up is the Mandalorian TV show, where through most of it, the, the title character of the Mandalorian does not remove his helmet. And you probably have more room to even explore how this works in that tv show because you know vader vader's you know generally dealing with severe situations uh but mm. in the, the over the course of the mandalorian tv show you have him interacting with with light and cute things with comedic things as well as serious things and so there's plenty of opportunity for that uh, again this you know emotionalist mandalorian helmet in this case uh to to, uh, to seem to convey uh different emotions uh, and, of course, that's not to discount body language and plenty of other, um, you know, cues that uh, uh, enable us to lean into it. But, but still, uh, you know, all these things work together to help us form that theory of mind. What's going on inside Vader's mind? What's going on inside the Mandalorian's mind or Howl's mind?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Another great example.
1: Uh, now, one example I was, I was looking into and thinking about, too, uh, brings us back to Hitchcock. I was thinking about um, Psycho. Uh, hmm. which of course has has a number of scenes that are very iconic and uh, you know we, that easily come to mind and you may even be able to picture even if you haven 't seen the film uh, but there's there 's one scene in particular where janet lee 's Marion Crane is changing clothes in her room at the Bates motel Norman Bates played by the the handsome anthony Perkins uh is in an adjacent room he approaches a picture frame he removes it. And it reveals a peephole. Uh, he puts his eye to the peephole, and we switch to a POV shot of his voyeurism. Here's Marion Crane undressing. Then a close-up of his eye- eyeball, like side view of his eyeball, staring through the peephole. She moves out of view in the P- in the POV shot, and then he places the picture frame back over the peephole, back still turned to us. But then he turns, and we see his face. And he, and and his face is very interesting in this performance and particularly in this scene because it is, I mean, it's hard to to, to register exactly what he's feeling. Like it's not like he looks. It's kind of blank. I mean, I end up reading into it if I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it. Like, what's he thinking? Obviously, I know what's about to happen. He's going to go in there and kill her while she's in the shower. So, it's easy to read in like grim determination, but he's not like, you know, snarling and snickering with, uh, with, with fiendish uh, desire in this uh, scene or anything. Um, and uh, it's also interesting to think about this in terms of, of subversion because, um, you know, we think of Anthony Perkins now. We think of Psycho. We think of him playing this um, this uh, very troubled, uh, and murderous individual. But prior to this film, he was like a, a Jimmy Stewart esque leading man and a former teen heartthrob. So, so <laughs> Hitchcock was subverting this uh, image in Psycho. So it's it's interesting to think about that watching a scene like this. Yeah. Though I also have to add that having your character look through
0: a, a peephole like this is is hardly like neutral. Uh, right yeah (laughs) no that gives us a different idea of him i mean in the scene earlier he's uh, he's got a very boy next door kind of energy he seems uh you know just kind of like a sweet shy handsome young guy yeah but yeah once he's looking through the peephole that does charge the way we read his face very
1: differently right now speaking of hitchcock and uh and voyeurism it's also worth uh uh, worth noting that uh, Rear Window, uh, starring the actual Jimmy Stewart, has plenty of examples of this sort of thing, where you know a lot of that movie is Jimmy Stewart's character looking through a telescope, and then we have POV shots of what he is seeing uh, in other apartments,
0: and then right. he reacts. And then it cuts back to him, yeah.
1: Uh, now, one, one more sort of – it's sort of an example of it, but also kind of a subversion of it is a Spielberg face. Oh, yeah. This is the close-up <laughs> of awe and wonder on an actor's glazed face in reaction to something they're looking at, like a, like a big old shark or a UFO or a field full of
0: dinosaurs or something. Well, in the more specific sense, generally I would say these are not neutral faces, but they are mm-hmm. faces that are – Clearly, they're having some kind of powerful inner experience, but it sometimes might be ambiguous if you were to just see the face by itself. Uh, but then when it's intercut with what they're looking at, it's, it's very often awe right and and sometimes this is actually manipulated to uh,
1: to uh, comedic effect online, mm-hmm. for instance, in the Jurassic Park sequence where they you know they 're odd they 're getting out of the car they 're just you know completely zombified by something utterly amazing and holy before them you don 't know what it is yet I mean you know it 's going to be dinosaurs, but you right. haven 't seen it yourself yet, oh. and so I, I feel, feel like there have been a number of uh, of comedic bits where someone has has inserted something else there. Uh, uh you know something maybe more mundane than uh, than gigantic dinosaurs brought back to life through science
0: it's the new taco bell menu item or- exactly <laughs> All right. Well, we ended up having a lot to say about the Kuleshov effect, actually. So uh, I think we're going to have to call part one there. But when we come back, we can talk about some uh, some attempts to replicate the original Kuleshov study, some interpretations of what may be lying behind it to the extent that it's true, and then maybe uh, a little more research about ambiguous faces in general.
1: In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed with core episodes on Tuesday and Thursday, listener mail on Monday, artifact on Wednesday, and hey, we're talking about film, so uh, be aware that on Fridays, that's Weird House Cinema, that's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird or unusual film.
0: Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com